When I was a senior in high school, my dad lost our house to the IRS. It hit me like a, a can of bricks, a load of bricks. I couldn't go to college. I didn't really have the money. So I continued to work. Went to community college, two years of community college, transferred all of those credits to Pitt, eventually graduated. I'm 26 years old, so I was a little bit behind everyone else. Everybody has that dream. Go for it. You have it, no matter what it costs, you'll have to sacrifice. You'll have to spend that six thousand dollars or that hundred thousand dollars or take out a loan for millions of dollars. But do it. Don't be shy. Go get it. This is Pittsburgh, a place where a rich heritage of making things and a fierce independent nature come together to create a thriving entrepreneurial community. Whether you're a small business owner looking for ideas or inspiration, or you're an enthusiastic supporter of local businesses, you'll find it here. I'm your host, Darren Volano, and this is the Proprietors of Pittsburgh podcast. Today, my guest is Mark Kasky. He's the founder of Steel Nation. Mark, thanks so much for being on the show today. Appreciate you being on. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Darren. So your company is Steel Nation, and you design and you build steel structures in the oil and gas industry. But could you tell us a little bit more about what the buildings are for? What actually is the purpose of the building? And then who are they for? Who are some of your clients? So they're all related on, there's difference between conventional steel and pre-engineered metal buildings. As we were walking in the studio today, uh, there's two big buildings being built right across the street. That is conventional steel. That's when you go multiple stories. Pre-engineered buildings are good for maybe two, three stories, maybe max at four. About 100 feet tall is about as high as you want to go in a pre-engineered. Um, there's a lot of savings in pre-engineered uh, the way they're designed, and I want to bore you or, or your guests on the engineering side, but but for industrial buildings, wide span buildings, we can go 300 feet wide. When you see big sports complexes, like up in the Lemieux Center up north, these are all steel buildings, indoor practice fields, those types of things. So in the oil and gas industry, it's a very loud industry. We specialize in, in three things in oil and gas, compressor stations, transmission stations, and processing plants. These buildings are super loud in that these engines are, are probably the size of your house um, or your, your standard Pittsburgh house. You know, two stories high, engines can be 20 by 80 feet long, 100 feet long sometimes, different models, things like that. But they're extremely loud. They're mostly diesel, some electric. And what these engines are, they're, they range from what you would hear in a Caterpillar truck going down the highway to a turbine engine at the airport. Mm -hmm. So we fell into this uh, when I started the company in 2008, really concentrating on sound attenuation. You know, we're sitting in a, in a sound studio right now. We see a lot of things on the walls that are deadening the, our voices and the other sounds in the room. And it's very similar to what we do in these steel buildings. We're, we're actually building mass, either eight or 10 inches of mineral wool inside the walls of the building. That's what makes it quiet. It absorbs all that sound. And who are some of the buildings for? Who are some of the clients? You talked about uh, processing companies and these midstream companies. Can you right. talk a little bit more about who these players are that are your clients? Yeah, sure. At the top of the line is the transmission companies. So you you have whoever, whatever gas company you have at your house, whether it's Dominion, TC Energy, which is TransCanada that took over Columbia Gas, Equitable Gas, People's Natural Gas, those type. Those are all the transmission companies. Not all, but many of those are our clients. 
in, in even the bigger ones of Enbridge, Kinder Morgan. These are pipelines that run across the United States and into Canada and even down into Mexico and even for export. So the transmission companies are kind of the top of the line. They're moving the most gas. Eventually, they distribute the gas to houses and businesses and there's really no work in there because everything's underground. There's no compression needed. The second part is the midstream companies. Midstream companies would be Mark West, Williams, that are both based in Pittsburgh here, uh, that are both our top clients, DT Energy, um, and, and many others, that they do the gathering at the wells. So the Marcellus Shale came around. It's about 14 years since we've been exploring the Marcellus Shale. So when you pump gas out of the ground, it comes out at a very high horsepower. I mean, the gas is really moving it, but, but from that day on, it'll drop in the amount of gas, the volume that, that goes through that line. So we build compressor stations. If we build a compressor station in the middle of, say, a five-mile radius, we're probably compressing maybe up to 10 different well sites. Um, and you want to build that so it's convenient to everything else. So those 10 different well sites are all passing through that compressor station. So compression of gas does two things. You cool it down so your atoms get tighter, and then it's more convenient to put it through the line. Um, if you were just trying to, to pump, so to speak, natural gas, it's very hard to do. It must be compressed, not to a liquid form like petroleum, but it must be compressed to get it to the next phase. And the next phase is usually into another midstream compression station or a processing plant or a transmission line. The third thing that we're involved in is gas processing. So we, we hear about liquid natural gas, LNG, that's how you export to some of these other countries, mainly Japan on the, on the eastern side and then most of Europe. I'm sorry, Japan on the western side and then um, I'm thinking far east, but and then to Europe out of these. But, but you have to compress that gas to and then cool it and heat it and do all these different process things to it to get into liquid format. The volumes to transport natural gas overseas would just be too great. You have to really condense it down. So really those three things, midstream compression, transmission, and processing plants. Let's talk a little bit more about the size of the buildings. You talked about the size of the engines, which is something that's being housed in the buildings. What are the average size of the buildings that you're constructing and where do they tend to be located? I'm assuming out in the field somewhere because that's probably where these companies are, but maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that. So buildings, if, if we're covering just a single compressor, it might be as small as 40 by 50. Um, we do have a lot of auxiliary buildings, office buildings, laboratories, and they would be much smaller. It's similar to that size, 30 by 50. The biggest building we've ever done in natural gas was a football field wide times six football fields long. Wow. Yeah, I mean, tremendous. And, and the, this hosted, I believe, 14 compressor engines lined up side by side, you know, as, as far as you, you could see. Um, so some of these can be very big. The technology has gotten better now. Instead of putting 14 engines into a single building, you could replace those 14 with probably two jet engines, okay? So these are, these are turbines, very almost exactly like you would see at the airport on a 737 or, or DC-10 or 747, depending on the size of those. So those buildings are much smaller. Those buildings are probably 100 by 150, 200 
probably 100 by 200 would be an average, uh, but they, they compress a lot more gas and they move a lot more gas. And how many buildings do you put up per year on average? About 60, 65 buildings a year. Um, we're in a slowdown right now that you and I discussed earlier. So we're probably down in the 40 to 50 a year um, range the last two years. And COVID had a lot to do with that as well. Now, when you started the company back in 2008, you were working for somebody else at the time. You were working in a different industry too, although it's energy, you were working in coal. Right. And you approached your employer about possibly shifting the focus to natural gas, oil and gas, because you saw that as the future and then it started to take off, but you weren't successful in convincing your employer to, to make that change. And you decided that's what prompted you to go out and start your company, which is Steel Nation. Right. Can you talk a little bit about that time? What happened during that time where you approached them? Could you tell us that, that story a little bit so we can get a, an insight into what you were going through when you made the change and then started your own business? I, I, I'm very proud of the work I did with coal, but coal is a dirty, dirty animal. And I, saw, I knew that by the time uh, the Obama administration came in, and it was even before the Obama administration, you know, back in the Bush years, that the EPA was putting a lot of pressure on these coal-powered power plants, coal-fired power plants. I knew natural gas was, was going to be the savior. I think I told you this story where uh, I started seeing all these white trucks with Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana license plates. And, you know, I thought it was one of these weird movies or something. You know, we're being invaded by, uh, by these energy states. And, uh, well, my local uh, watering hole where I enjoy a beer and a, a burger every once in a while, I started meeting some of these guys. And the guys took me to the original well. The original well is eight miles from my house in a little town called Hickory, Pennsylvania. And it was called the Renz Well, R-E-N-Z. And that was the very first hydraulic fractured Marcellus well in the whole Marcellus Shale, which is about five or six states. And they took me out there and I was just amazed at the technology, the production, the people working on it, you know, the environmental people, the safety people, and on and on and on. And I noticed that there were no buildings on this site. And I was a little bit bummed out. And I, I said to my, my buddy, and uh, I'm still friends with him today. His, his name's Randall Pinnell. He's from, back in Louisiana. I said, Randall, where's the buildings? And he said, oh, no, this will be a totally reclaimed. We come back. We, we build trees and, and put wetlands. We fix the wetlands, you know, do all this environmental stuff that we have to do. And we're proud to do it, to bring it back to Mother Nature. He says, you're thinking of compression. And he said, look up on that hill up here. You can see the corner of that building. That's the very first compression building in the Marcellus Shale. And this is out in Washington County, by the way, south of Pittsburgh. And uh, he said, go see uh, Jimmy Ray over there. He'll, he's my buddy. He'll show you around. So I drove and, you know, found my way over there. You know, and I don't even think we had GPS at that point. You know, and I found this compressor building. And it would just been built, and it was a tin can. There was no sound attenuation like we see in this room. Uh, how I described earlier, the doors were wide open. The building was hot. It was overheating. It was the middle of summer and all these different things. And, um, and I got to talking to them, and they said, yeah, this, this was the very first compressor building. And I said, what is compression? I knew nothing about compression. I knew about coal. I didn't know about natural gas. Well, needless to say, when I finally made it home that afternoon, I spent probably the next 36 hours online researching. That's when I had my eureka moment that I can build these things better. I can build them cheaper and quieter. And I have this saying, clean, cool, quiet, and safe. And that really drove the, the start of Steel Nation. I went back to my boss and I said, we really need to get in the oil and gas business. 
And he said, oh, you know, Pennsylvania, Western Pennsylvania, the, uh, you know, up in Titusville and Oil City, you know, that was the original Drake well was, was in Pennsylvania and it produced uh, about three and a half gallons a day. You know, he said, that I, I'm not going to go the, the highs and the lows that this industry, and he, and he was right. This industry has very many highs and very many lows, and it swings based on the price of this commodity. So I went to the owner of the business and said, we got it. We got to take advantage of this business. And he said, no, I'm not going to do it. And I shook his hand right then and there. And I said, thanks for letting me be here for a couple of years, but I got to go out and start my own. And that's all I did. Now, when we spoke earlier, you talked about not being a good employee and that you're really an entrepreneur at heart. And I think what you mean by that is like a lot of entrepreneurs say that because they they work for somebody else. They see an opportunity. They want to move on it. They they see a better way to do something and they want to change it. And when you're an employee, you don't, you're not always in a position to do that. Right. Unless you're at a certain level or or maybe you have the ear of the the founder or the president and you're able to make those changes. A lot of people do get frustrated when they're working for other folks in the ability to, to make those changes. I'm assuming this example of you wanting to pivot and focus on this other industry was an example of you, you know, quote unquote, not being a good employee. Right, is right. that what you meant by that? And, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, what is the difference for you between working for somebody else and, and what it was like to go out as an entrepreneur in 2008? It, it wasn't a pleasure departure, right? I was, he wanted me there. He wanted, I was, I was designing buildings, I was selling buildings, business development director, um, had people working for both of us. And uh, it was time for me to, to start something new. But if, if I look back, you know, I, I started, I'm a Pitt graduate and I first started as a manufacturing um, consultant. And we were efficiency experts. You know, we'd follow widgets from the time they were delivered into a factory and all the steps that the widget had to go through. And I enjoyed that. And that was a great start. That that was probably the start of my entrepreneurial abilities because I looked at everything as cost. Why are we doing, why are three people touching this when only you'd only really need one to touch it? We could cut our cost two-thirds, you know. So that really gave me a lot of impetus when I started a couple different businesses. Um, as I walked into the sound studio today, I was impressed my previous life. My wife and I started an advertising agency at one point in my life. She was tired of me traveling to San Francisco and living in San Francisco for three and a half years. And uh, she said, um, you know, I, can't, I really can't do this long distance anymore. And I thought about it. I said, you know, I like my job, but I really like my future wife. <laughs> you know, so um, <laughs> that was the, the first business that we had started. And then we own some real estate and manage real estate and still do at, the, at this time. But yeah, as, as a matter of fact, we did a lot of real estate and construction company. Uh, South Point, where my office is, Jack Pyatt, who's the grandfather of uh, who started South Point back in the 80s. We started working with him in the late 80s. Um, it was just nothing but fields, you know, kind of like what you see where, where you're at in the North Hills, but further into Mars. You know, it's all getting developed now, right? Uh, Cranberry used to be a farm. So um, I went to work uh, for one of my clients, the, the company that I'm talking about. I, I like tangibles, you know, advertising, marketing, consulting. Those are all intangibles. You know, it looks good on paper. It looks good on the bottom line, but you can't really touch and feel it. You can't walk through it, put your arm around it, hug it. And I really wanted to do something where I was back to building something. And that's really my roots from wor- working at a lumber company by the time I was 14 through college, you know, and um, it, it was a, a, a big impetus for me starting the company because I really wanted to touch and feel an actual product. And when you started the company back in 2008, Steel Nation, you started with 
like $6,000, right? You didn't have a lot of money. You were starting from scratch when right. you left that employer, the, the story you talked about right. and you, you started your business. Can you talk about what it was like to start a company with very little financially and how did you finance it? How did you get that first client or, or convince that first client to take you seriously? Because right. I mean, you, you had the background, you had the, the skill set, you had the experience, but yet you were a new fledgling company and you had to convince that first client or the first couple that you're a player and that you're here to stay and that you're really gonna build this business and that you're really gonna do it in this industry. You're gonna take what you were doing in coal and do it here because you saw this, the sound, the noise, mm -hmm. right? And you wanted to address that. So how did you convince those first uh, clients to go on with you, to sign on with you? So yeah, the $6,000 is kind of funny. You know, everybody, uh, so you, there's no way I don't think you can start a business today with 6,000, although I have a solution to it. Let me, let me stick with the 6,000 and then I'll answer the question, how did I convince clients to, to go with Steel Nation? So like you said, I had 6,000 in my name. Um, I wasn't getting any bonuses from my previous job. I, I knew that he wasn't gonna pay me and I had some serious money coming, 50, 60,000 coming and I knew I'd never see it, which I didn't. But the working capital, six grand, I had a spare bedroom. I had a computer, one computer, and the ability, I had software to design metal buildings. And I also had the ability to design metal buildings. So I went out, I started knocking on doors and people's, all the local gas companies, you know, all the public utilities, so to speak, Consolidated, Dominion, People's Natural Gas, EQT. And, I, and they, they were great. You know, these are oil and gas people were on the start of a new thing with this Marcellus Shell. Sure, yeah, we need a local supplier. You know, they, they were dealing with suppliers out of Texas and Oklahoma, which is 2,500 miles away sometimes in parts of Oklahoma. It'd be a lot cheaper to manufacture here in Pennsylvania. So they'd get great meetings with engineers and project managers and buyers and those types of things and um, supply chain managers and things like that. And at the end of the meeting, we'd go to shake hands and they loved all my coal buildings and, and other buildings, warehouses. And they said, Mark, when was the last time you built a natural gas building? I said, and it'd be a fun joke, right? Well, I've never built a natural gas building, but you're going to be my first. And I'd shake their hand and we'd get a good chuckle on it. But I understood They're, they were not going to be the first guinea pig. They, I had to prove myself, uh, which I did. Atlas, long story short, Atlas Energy, local Moon Township company, gave me a shot at a single little building, a 40 by 50 building that turned into nine in a row that really got us off the ground. For entrepreneurs, my biggest thing was I demanded a 35% deposit on whatever we were building. So get paid up front. Get paid up front for one, you know, just round it to a third. This is because it makes sense. Because I'm gonna, I'm gonna, the factory that I'm gonna pay, I'm gonna pay them about the same amount. And then you have the engineering behind it. You might need an architect and permits and, and all those things. So that immediately at, at 35%, you don't know, say a $100,000 project, boom, immediately that 6,000 just turned into 35 plus 35,000, you know, 40. Now you have 40,000 to start. Although the 6,000 was gone in three hours. Yeah, it helps, to, it helps to get paid up front when you're starting a business because some people that are starting businesses where, where you don't get paid till later, that's where you have to have the money. You have to have the runway to fi finance it. One of the beauty of the, the beauty of Steel Nation is we, till this day, do not have to carry a lot of inventory. You know, we're we're just in time manufacturing. That I learned years ago. Don't start making anything until you have an order for it. And I think that's why I see so many small businesses fail. 
you know, if you were opening up a restaurant, let's just pick a bar and restaurant. Well, you're going to spend ten thousand dollars on the on the liquor and the beer that you need. You're going to spend another twenty thousand on the food that you need. Now all the furnishings that you you know before you know it, you're in a million dollars and you haven't sold a dollar yet. It's tough. Now three years into your business, you had a setback. You had a client that was a public utility or large public utility in Michigan. You didn't get paid at the end. There was a final invoice. You didn't get paid. I understand this was a significant sum of money, um, so much so that it could have potentially put you out of business. How did you deal with this situation? How did you save the company or prevent your company from not going out of business? How did you stay afloat? How did you address and get through this situation? So like you said, it's a public utility, and I don't want to mention their name, but uh, right outside of Detroit, Michigan, we were doing a lot of stuff in, in, in Michigan early in the, in the early days. But there was a lot of lines that were going up to Canada. Canada needs gas. And then we actually reversed a lot of lines. We were pulling natural gas uh, down through Nova Scotia at one time until about eight years ago, and we reversed that line. Now we're, we're an exporter of natural gas in, into Canada. So this, this company, um, it was our first project with them. It was a big project. It was a, definitely a seven-figure, you know, maybe a $2 million project at the time. And when we delivered the building and we were unloading, an inspector came over and said, these frames are not galvanized. I won't bore you with what's galvanized or not. You can either paint steel or galvanize steel. Galvanize is an electromagnetic project that turns it in. It looks like a guardrail, okay? That white, shiny. And, uh, and I said, These, there was nothing in, in there about, you know, we have, we have signed approvals and everything like that. He goes, no, on page 764, at the very bottom of the page in small writing, it says, all steel must be galvanized. And sure enough, I went back and looked at the spec. And to a point, he was correct but we had already had signed, sealed, and delivered from all the engineer side of it. Well, I had already received the 35% and probably another 30% on delivery. And then uh, it was supply only, so we did not erect that building. And we ended up spending buku money, taking the steel, run it through a wheel abrader, which takes the paint off, and then galvanizing all the steel. And this was a massive, you know, over a million pounds of steel. And uh, that cost us an arm and a leg. And they just decided not to pay us, you know, and we're a big... Even though you did it, we, you corrected we it, corrected they still it. didn't pay yeah, you. We corrected everything. And they said, well, you, you cause us irreparable damage on our schedule. Well, even after we spent a week and a half and we did a rush job on galvanizing this local company and, and you know, big company out of, out of Detroit, that steel sat on the ground for about another three weeks. So the, they, they were not honest in that, but I can, I can kind of smile about it now, but it was $420,000 that it caused us very much pain. Yeah. That was in the third year of business. And, um, you know, at, at first I thought it was going to, we were going to go out of business, but we just kept, we were so busy and growing so fast that if we took that 420 and divided by 10, oh, well that's 42,000. So let's try to make it back on every project that we do you know, and of course, forty-two thousand. You're not you're not, not going to make that back. But it took us about two years, and uh, eventually came out. We were never in debt. We still had a positive cash flow, um, but it was just we weren't paid for our profit, basically. Let's talk a little bit more about the um, construction of the buildings. So you employ a team of people that consists of engineers. You have designers. You also have people on staff that manage the or oversee the construction process. So when you're erecting the buildings, is it a combination of your team or your crew 
and subcontractors, or is it primarily subcontractors that are doing the actual work? And then I'm also curious, you know, how many trades are involved with what you're doing? Is it, you know, there's probably concrete involved. There's the steel, you know, panels or building itself, and right. there may be, I'm not sure, other things involved. Maybe elect, electric work. How many people are you managing all at once with one of these projects? So um, I leave here when we're done, and I have to be up in south of Loretto, Pennsylvania. We're doing a big project up there for a transmission company. So it's interesting. From I've been dealing with steel erectors for a long time. Steel erectors are great, okay? But you have to lay them off sometime in the winter. We, we actually never lay them off because we're so busy in the wintertime. It doesn't matter anymore. But traditionally, you'd lay, lay people off in the wintertime, bring them back the, you know, when the weather breaks. And what I, I said from day one, I didn't, I was working out of, out of my house and, and I said, I don't want to have that many employees that I have to do all the HR, the babysitting at times, the drug testing, everything that goes on with having that many employees. Um, so it, to this day, we subcontract. We have about eight different really good companies across the United States that we deal with as subcontractors, so ma mainly steel erection. We also do concrete, and I felt the same way. I don't want to do our own concrete because that's very cyclical in the way of uh, lay layoffs in the wintertime, those types of things. We are packagers. We are project managers, construction managers. We package all the different necessities that go into this building, package those correctly, and then we have a project. I'm going to see my project manager, Michael Turton, this afternoon. And it works out. It's a, it's, it's a great business plan where, you know, at one time we were 40 people because of the slowdown. We're about mid-20s right now. But we mm -hmm. still got 100 directors working right now. We probably got 50 different um, cement people, con you know, concrete guys, electrical people out in the field. So it's, it, it makes hundreds and hundreds of people. And what makes your construction process unique too, is you're working side by side with your clients in a lot of ways, right? Because they are putting in the specialized equipment into the building. So the engines, the turb turbines, the piping, right. you're not, you're kind of doing the, the shell and they're doing right. those other specialized components. So you're really working side by side to make sure that all comes together. What's that process like of coordinating so that you're not stepping on each other's toes, you're right. getting the project done under, I'm, I'm assuming it's all programmed uh, in a way where, you know, you're, each person knows what they need to do so that it's, it's coming together as a total project. Right. Like I said, we do from the ground up, we'll, we'll do site clearing, we'll do concrete, we'll do steel erection, uh, we'll put in all the, the HVAC, all the sound attenuation, the lighting in the building. The one thing that we never wanna touch because that's where things go bad and that's where things blow up is the, usually the general contractor is the mechanical contractor. We're not skilled in piping, we're not skilled in you know, hooking up all this, all these gas lines to the equipment that you just you said, Darren. So we work with those mechanical contractors side by side. That, like I said, they tend to be the general contractor. Most of the contract is in that equipment. You know, we're putting forty million dollars worth of equipment in. Well, you better hire someone good that knows how to do it, right? The building might only be a million, million two, or or less sometimes. You know, our average average building is probably six, seven hundred thousand dollars, and then extra for to erect it and those types of things. But um. You know, we, I always tell people we, we have safety meetings at 6.30 every morning. The general contractor's there, the mechanical contractor, we're there. All of our subs are there, you know, and it works as, as a good team. And, um, you know, you see a lot of infighting on some, getting into these, these bigger commercial projects, you'll see a lot of infighting. And we take pride in, you know, that we work good together with all, everybody else on the team. Now, your buildings are designed to 
react in a certain way to explosion or fire and things like that, which hopefully those are rare scenarios, but they can't happen. Right. I understand a few years ago, you had a set of buildings. I think it was a series of buildings that you had built out in the uh, Marcellus Shale field for a client. Mm -hmm. And not long after you finish it, there was an explosion, right. unfortunately for that client. And I, I'm curious what happened. If you could tell us a little bit about what happened, how did your buildings perform in that scenario? And I'm assuming that you had to go back in and maybe rebuild or something for the client. Right. So we finished on a Friday, uh, probably two, three o'clock, had, had, had spent the week cleaning up all our stuff. We did a, a total of 12 buildings there at that time. Actually, at that time, there was 11 that we came back and did. We replaced that one and did another one. But on Sunday, they were going through the startup process of a three compressor building. And unfortunately, a weld, a weld alet, which I won't bore you, had let off. Okay. And it, a high pressure gas went into the next machine, into the turbocharger, which is, is like a, a spark plug sparking, and it blew the entire building up. Now, instead of blowing the building up and having projectiles like the, in the Iraqi war, you know, or, or anything we see what, what happened in Israel recently, um, you know, you see those, that's what happens if, if, if it's not designed correctly, all, those, all that equipment is, is exploding and going elsewhere. We do something that's a little bit secretive and that we give it some play. We don't want the building to be super tight. We want the panels to be able to give. Mm -hmm. And they, 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 as exactly as performed, they gave at the bottom of the building and it, we had no projectiles, nothing. The building stayed full. So by the time we were able to turn the gas, it, it extenuated itself, extinguished itself pretty fast. So it's really designed to help contain the, the shrapnel, the blast, the, the blast. fire. Yeah. Besides the sound attenuation, which is a, a big reason why you build these, there's right. there's another safety component to, to having these exactly. these structures. Right. Yeah. We use special screws and bolts um, at the bottom of the building to where everything at the top is not going to blow out. But we allow it. We use uh, shorter screws, smaller bolts. We want those to, to to break, and that's exactly what they did. Now, besides putting up the steel buildings, which is your primary business, we talked a lot about that during our conversation here. But one of the other things you do is you provide engineering services. So you could sell your services, environmental services as well. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe some of your clients in those two areas are could be outside the oil and gas industry. So it could be healthcare, it could be other major or heavy industry, for example. Correct. Can you talk a little bit about those other services that you offer and maybe who are some of the types of clients that would purchase those services from you? It's usually related to a steel building, okay? So we've done a lot of healthcare stuff on the interior build outs uh, for the design of that, the architectural side of it. But it tends to be, our clients tend to have something to do around that steel building. So the other three divisions, like you're saying, is Steel Nation Engineering, Steel Nation Environmental, and Steel Nation Facility Services, which you didn't mention. Facility services, we go back and fix stuff. You know, the, the buildings need some tender loving care or any other thing that's that's needed. There'll be, you know, the buildings get old. You know, there might've been something built back in the 1940s. We'll tear it down and rebuild. So a client can not only hire you to build it, but also to come back and maintain it. And that becomes an ongoing source of right. revenue for you if if they do select you as the, the maintenance or the management company. Exactly. Yeah, and the engineering side, um, we do a lot of wastewater treatment plants on the engineering side. We have a couple of guys that, They've been around for a while and they've been in that industry before they joined us. So, you know, we, we like processing things, you know, whether you're processing coal, natural gas, water, 
you know, it's, it's all the same thing. It's a commodity and you have to move stuff in big volumes through these processes. And that's real where we excel. I think one of the things that's interesting too, that we talked about earlier was back to, again, your early days in the company, you as a designer, because now you have this whole team, right? You have engineers because you're doing your own steel buildings, plus you're selling the services. I mean, you have a professional team, you have professional engineers on staff, but you started, like you said, by yourself and you were the designer, right? And you sort of had to teach yourself how to do that in the beginning. And I think now you have help from your team, right. but I think people might find it interesting when you were just a, a one person show, you were doing it all, including, like you said, you were in that room with that one computer and the software that you had designing and putting together your own designs. What was that like? And how has that helped you evaluate the work from your team? Because now that you have a team doing it, they're probably doing maybe better work because they're maybe more uh, specialized in that, but you're also able to have an opinion about it and oversee it because you you did it yourself. Right. You know, it's, it was funny, the uh, the first 400 buildings or so that that we manufactured and, and, and erected and things, that was all me. I designed every one of them. Now, I didn't do the final design, the steel detailing and things like that, but to where every piece of steel is going to be where I designed it to be. And I took a lot of pride in that, and you, and you got to know it. And, and you're right, I've, now we have other people to do that, and I've gotten kind of gotten out of it. I'm more of the looking over the whole ship rather than just the kitchen of the ship, if that makes any sense. Um, but I miss it. I, I still design, I force myself to get back and design a couple buildings a month just to keep me fresh. It's like riding a bike, you know. You yeah. don't want to lose that skill. You, exactly. It's something that you've done for a long time. Right. You want to be able to keep it fresh. And we do have some young designers that I see where they haven't designed 400 buildings yet and they'll make some errors and you have to really point them out, you know, and the, you would have been better off doing this to save money, more safety wise, you know, those types of things. It's all part of, of building a team. Mark, as we wrap up, what advice do you have for other entrepreneurs that might be listening to this that want to start their own business like you? You came from an industry that a lot of people would think would be hard to start a business in because it's asset intensive. We talked about that earlier. You know, you wanted to get your hands around it, which is why you left advertising and you went back into uh, something that was tangible. A lot of people would think that your industry, it takes a lot of money to get started. You obviously were able to do it without having as much because you figured out a way. What thoughts or, or things did you learn along the way? Would you pass on to somebody listening to this who maybe wants to do something similar? It doesn't have to be the same industry, but maybe it's asset intensive, or maybe it just involves them having the courage to leave their employer because they have an idea and not be afraid to go out and start it. When I was a senior in high school, my dad lost our house to the IRS. It hit me like a, a can of bricks, a load of bricks. I couldn't go to college. I didn't really have the money. So I continued to work. Went to community college, two years of community college, transferred all of those credits to Pitt, eventually graduated. I'm 26 years old, so I was a little bit behind everyone else. But I always wanted to, to be self-employed. I saw people that I grew up with that made a big impact on me. I knew I was going to be self-employed. Everybody has that dream. Go for it. You have it, no matter what it costs. You'll have to sacrifice. You'll have to spend that six thousand dollars or that hundred thousand dollars, or take out a loan for millions of dollars. But do it. Don't be shy. Go get it. Mark, thank you so much for being on the show today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Darren. Appreciate it. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please do me and the Pittsburgh small business community a huge favor by giving it a rating on your favorite podcast app. It really helps others to find the show so that we can continue to build our community. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do. 
And if you know someone who should be on the podcast or you'd like to connect with me, you can reach me at proprietorsofpittsburgh.com or at 412-336-8247. I'm Darren Volano, and this is the Proprietors of Pittsburgh podcast. Take care.